0: The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. take your Bibles with me, please, tonight and the book of Revelation and chapter 13, please. Revelation chapter number 13. And when you find your spot there, go back one verse to the last verse of chapter number 12. Uh, We're going to get back and jump right into things here uh, where we left off. Um, a couple weeks ago, and we will recap just to make sure we're all on the same page uh, with the uh, break and with all the different messages we've had as we have uh, gone through this last week with Missions Conference as well. I want to make sure that we're all on the same page and reminded on what we have covered thus far, and uh, we will read that in just a moment. Uh, But of course, as we've started every uh, message since chapter 1 and verse number 19, uh, we want to just kind of recap the outline that the Lord gave to uh, John as he were to write about uh, these uh, things in this book of Revelation. And uh, so the first thing we said was the uh, first point was to write about the things that he saw that was found in chapter number one then the things that are in chapters 2 and 3, discussing uh, what was taking place literally in those churches, those seven churches of Asia Minor, but also um, uh, the prophetic meaning for the church age in which we are in today. And then, of course, chapters 4 through the end of the book are the things that are after these things. And in fact, chapter 4, verse 1 opens up with after this. And uh, so it kind of gives us that that cue uh, that we are moving on into these future events. And uh, so Look at chapter 12 and verse number 17 just quickly. We'll read it, and then we'll recap a little bit. We'll look at what we discussed a couple of weeks ago uh, in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll get into new content here tonight as well. So verse number 17 of chapter 12 says, "'And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed.'" which uh, kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's pray right there and ask for the Lord's blessings, and we'll jump right into things. Our Father, we thank you for tonight and the opportunity to be in your house. We'd ask that you just bless our time as we study your word, and to give me the word to speak as I deliver it, and uh, Lord, that you'd be honored, glorified through it, and uh, that we just see your hand at play in all that is taking place here as we study tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. And so as we looked at the end of chapter 12 here, uh, we find that uh, Satan is upset. He's wroth, it says there in chapter uh, 17 uh, verse number 17, uh, with Israel. He's upset at what has taken place. God has protected uh, the believing Jews and has put them there in uh, Petra or uh, uh, there at Bostra, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we have been learning that these chapters, uh, chapters 11, uh 12, 13, and 14, uh, compile or sandwich together the events of what we know to be the uh, the midpoint of tribulation. Chapter 10 brings us into those events, and chapter 15 brings us out of it, uh, of course, as we see there. Uh, but it, 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 it bridges the gap from going from the first half of tribulation to the second half. And each one of these chapters have a, a marker or a cue that helps us denote the fact that we are in this time of mid-tribulation, that time that's bringing us from the first half to the second half. You'll find terminology like time times a half time, three and a half years, 42 months, or 1,260 days found there as well. And so, what is taking place after three and a half years of tribulation, uh, Satan is is uh, kind of ramping things up. It's moving into the last half of tribulation, which is known as the Great Tribulation. And uh, because of that, uh, we find uh, things are starting to spiral, if you may, out of control. And uh, as we find here that that leads uh, Satan because he wasn't able to attack Israel as God has protected them and, and brought them there into the wilderness, that remnant. It brings him to uh, bring his wrath against uh, a couple other groups that are still left there. It says that he was going to bring his make war with the remnant of her seed, uh, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so we said uh, that the believing remnant uh, they're protected, but those that keep the laws of God, uh, those who believe in God but not have accepted not accepted Jesus as Savior, they're they're following the Old Testament laws and the ways and such. And uh, so they're the ones that Satan's going to bring his attacks against. And then there's going to be a small portion, at least, of believing Gentiles as well. Uh, They aren't protected in the same place as the believing Jews, Um, and uh, so they're going to go through all of this, and they're going to experience these things as well. And that might seem unfair, but we've got to remember that there was no promise made to protect the Gentile believer, but just the Jewish believer, as God has a particular plan for their uh, use in the end of days, which we'll talk about as we continue on through the rest of of, uh, these uh, chapters here and get into the end of the book. But last week, we uh, looked at the fact of as we're discussing the Antichrist's rise to power, we looked last week, number one, or two weeks ago, I should say, at number one, Satan's work. And uh, we saw here in verses one and two of chapter 13, it says, and I stood upon the sands of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and 10 horns, and upon his horns, 10 crowns, and upon his heads, uh, the name of blasphemy. "'And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet was as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority.' And so we find as we open up in chapter 13, uh, this scene takes place, this beast is coming out of the sea, and uh, of course we understand that uh, Satan is going to use agents to be able to accomplish his work, and this is what we're seeing take place here as we will come to find this is speaking of the Antichrist, no doubt, and uh, the story centers on this beast which is familiar uh, probably to us as we discussed a couple weeks ago as we thought about Daniel chapter, uh, number seven and Daniel chapter seven, verses one through three said, and, uh, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, um, of his head upon his bed. Uh, and then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw by in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven strove upon this great sea and four great beasts came out, uh, from the sea diverse one from another. And so we won't go in and belabor all the points, uh, as we went into the details a couple weeks ago. But uh, this dragon comes out of the sea, and then uh, and we find this beast, or the dragon it speaks of, Satan, and this beast comes out of the sea as well, uh, reminding us of what we've read there in Daniel chapter 7. And uh, in verse number 1, uh, uh, we're told that the beast of Revelation 13 has the sa- similar features uh, to the beast there in Daniel chapter 7 as well, and even as unto the dragon. And so we discussed some of those a couple weeks ago, and... And uh, three of the beasts that came out, the lion, bear, and the leopard, and the horns, and on the horns, the crown, and of course, blasphemies there uh, spoken because of it. Let me read out of Daniel 7 verses 3 through 8 again just to give us a, a, a little more context as we continue on. It says, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and I beheld uh, till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon feet as man, and a man's heart was given to it. Behold, another beast, the second like to a bear, and it uh, raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in, its, in the mouth of, of it, between the teeth of it. And they said, uh, thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the, uh, the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and the minion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong, exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts uh, that were before it. And had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, uh, there came up among them another little horn. Before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, uh, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And uh, so this speaks of that last beast that is spoken of here, and an artist artist rendition of that there. Uh, but as we studied Daniel seven, we learned that the four beasts they represented something. It represented Uh, four empires, uh, four nations, if you may. Of course, starting that with Babylon, and uh, that was the head of gold there in Daniel chapter 2 that we discussed. Then the Persian empire uh, there with the bear and uh, the uh, chest uh, segment there of the uh, Medes and the Persians. And uh, then, of course, the Greek empire there with the waist and to the... uh, the top half of the legs there with a the leopard also. And then that last part, that last beast, what we're calling the imperialistic democratic alliances that began with Rome and a continuing on even into this day. And even as we look at the statue in chapter 2 of Daniel, it breaks to pieces and comes back together and so on and so forth. It's kind of mingled together, it speaks of there. And uh, no doubt that's what we are experiencing still in our world today. Um, so, we, uh, we won't go through all the, d- the rest of Daniel chapter 7, but as we recognize the connection here between Daniel 7 and uh, Revelation 13, uh, we begin to see a lot of similarities, all right? So there's the beast that were there, and then the dragon, and uh, both the beast and the dragon, and uh, they have horns, the only difference is that the crowns were on the horns there with the beast in Daniel chapter 7, whereas the crowns are on the heads there in, in Revelation chapter number 13. And so, as we are looking at all this and putting it together, we find that verse number 2 tells us about the beast specifically, that the dragon gives the beast power. And not just power, but he gives them all of his power. Look at verse number 2 of of Revelation 13. And the last part it says, And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And so that means that this beast literally becomes as powerful as Satan himself. And uh, the only way for that to happen is if Satan were to indwell this individual, this beast that is being spoken of. Now, at this point, we, uh, as we were closing up last a uh, couple weeks ago, we said we're going to want to decide, come to a conclusion, what these heads mean, right? What what are the meanings behind these heads and such? And uh, as we follow the rules of interpretation, uh, we find we look for the answer within context of Scripture, and so we look at the immediate verses around the script, this portion of Scripture in chapter thirteen, verses one and two. Obviously, as we look at it, we don't find the immediate answers. And so then we, of course, will look into surrounding chapters. Normally, we find the answer in the preceding verses or chapters. Here is one instance, one of rare occasion, where we actually find the answers in the verses following. And we find the answer to what these heads mean in Revelation 17. Now, we've not come to that portion of Scripture yet in our studies, so we won't jump ahead and, and do a bunch of uh, back and forth to, to which we would get confused. Uh, we will get to, we'll discuss it more in depth when we get to chapter 17. However, we're, uh, we'll, just, we'll, we'll, we'll jump into things and kind of give a, a glimpse into at least one of them and what they mean as we move into new content here tonight. So two weeks ago, we, uh, we looked at this and, and uh, looked at point number one and the rise of the Antichrist. We looked at Satan's work. But tonight, I want you to notice with me number two as we get into new things here and in verses three and four. Number two, notice with me Satan's worship. In verses three and four, it says, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered at the beast. And they worship the dragon, which gave uh, power unto the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like uh, unto the beast who is able to make war with him? And so one of the heads of the beast is slain. We don't yet know what the heads represent because we haven't really jumped into all that detail yet. As we said, chapter 17 gives us that information and the interpretation of it. But to make the study of this chapter easier... I'll just go ahead and say this, that the, the, uh, the slain head here represents the Antichrist himself, all right? And we'll come to that conclusion when we get to chapter 17, but just for the sake of time and the sake of this study in chapter 13, let's just take that as the assumption that uh, this head here that is slain represents the Antichrist himself. And uh, as we, we come to learn in chapter 17 what the meanings of all these are and what these heads represent, uh, we find that the seventh head on here is representing the Antichrist himself, which I said we'll get into that more when we get there, but that's where we'll just leave it here tonight. So there, therefore, the death of this head, as it says there in verse number three, were wounded to death, his deadly wound was healed. It is telling us here that the Antichrist, some at some point right here at the midway point of tribulation, about three and a half years in, three and a half years left to go, the Antichrist loses his life. Now, that's interesting to think about because we know, as we've already studied, that the Antichrist is behind a lot of what is taking place, at least uh, earthly speaking, when it comes to the turmoil and the troubles. And the Antichrist is going to be greatly used in bringing this wrath and this judgment along as well. And so, we already read in Daniel as well through our Daniel studies that the Antichrist, he's going to fully rise to power. He's, gonna, he's going to, he's going to uh, meet his greatest authority at the midway point. So if he get, raises to his greatest authority at the midway point of tribulation, but then he also dies, it's like, wow, that was anticlimactic, right? And we, we begin to wonder what in the world's going on. And so how does his dying fit into the plan that is going to take place and the, the fruition and the completion of the seven years of tribulation. But we remember that during the first half of tribulation, the Antichrist is beginning his rise to power. We remember that, right? And we find that as we see him as the rider on the four horse, horses. And uh, it's, it begins as he uh, brings, uh, you know, um, uh, just uh, the threatenings of war. And then there's bloodshed. And then there's uh, great economic collapse and, and all those things. And he's kind of slowly but surely climbing that ladder of authority. And he's not one of the 10 world leaders that is mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, uh, because we see those 10 horns, an 11th horn comes out of it. And so he, the, he's the 11th horn in that, of course. And so he is not in power necessarily at the very beginning of tribulation, but he is beginning his rise to fame as the events of tribulation begin to unfold. He consolidates his power through threats of war and his military conquest. We read that in chapter 6 of Revelation. But now we're learning that he's reaching his height of power. He's he's becoming the ultimate world leader here at the three and a half year mark. And as he's gaining this ultimate power, we also read that he is put to death. He's killed. Verse number 3, look at it again. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. Now, it says that his head had a deadly wound or a fatal wound in it. So, by by definition, the word fatal means death. That means that it's died. But then it says that the wound is healed. So, if a person is healed from death, then what does that ultimately mean? They've come back to life. They're not living dead because that would not be healed. They have come back to life. They are brought back from the dead. In verse number three, actually, it, it, it solidifies that understanding as well. Because look at what verse number three says. It says, his, uh, it says, I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. That, that phrasing of, uh, as it were wounded to death is the Greek phrase or words has spazos, uh, spazo, I'm sorry, which is the same terminology back in Revelation 5 that we read about the Lamb. Look, at, if you want to turn back there, you can read it again. But Revelation 5 and verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a Lamb. And here's the phrase: as it had been slain. As it had been slain and as it were wounded to death is the same Greek phrase. And back as we looked at Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 6, we discussed how that phrasing is a euphemism for resurrection, that He saw Him as if He had been slain, but now he stand before Him alive. It's stating his resurrection. And so the phrasing here in Revelation 13, again, not only just the fact that the wound was healed, but as he saw it as if it had been put to death, is stating that it was dead and now is alive as well. So we, we don't know exactly what kills the Antichrist. The Bible doesn't give us that information. Uh, but we can make some educated guesses if we if we try. Um, we we know that Daniel chapter seven, as we read earlier, tells us that the Antichrist comes on the scene, and he ends up uh, bringing or or defeating seven of the ten world leaders. Now, if we put all that together. Uh, Perhaps the Antichrist's rapid rise to power didn't set well with these three that he decides to eliminate, and so they get together and conspire to have this Antichrist assassinated. And when they have him assassinated, they think all is good, all is safe, and all is fine until this guy comes back from the dead, and then he has his way with them and eliminates them instead. Nevertheless, whether that's exactly what took place or not, that could be a conclusion to it. But uh, the question still might remain, how can the Antichrist then accomplish resurrection? Where does his power come from? We obviously know that it would have to be a supernatural power, right? In order for the Antichrist to rise from the dead, uh, he would, it would have to be a supernatural power. Well, obviously, we know that uh, God has the power to raise from the dead. Jesus Christ did that. He is God. He spoke, and uh, uh, children rose from the dead, and Lazarus came forth. We, we know he has the power to do that, but it's obvious by uh, what the Scripture is giving us detail about that God isn't calling the Antichrist back from the dead. So how is this happen, happening? Uh, apparently, then, the only answer to that would be that God has permitted Satan to give the power or have the power to be able to bring this individual, the Antichrist, back from the dead. Now, we understand, obviously, that Satan has quite a bit of power. But we understand also that it's not he doesn't have the same power as our God. And so we find that in order to do this, Satan has to indwell the Antichrist, taking up residence in this man's body. And this is what verse number two is indicating when it says that he gives the power to the beast. In verse number two again, and the dragon gave his power and his seat and great authority to him. And notice now this man raises from the dead, the Antichrist raises from the dead, and notice how the world reacts to this in verse number four of chapter 13 it says, and they what? Worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So, the, anti- the, 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 the resurrection of the Antichrist leads the world to say, who could be like this individual? Who could be as powerful and almighty and as worthy? Who could even w- wage any war against this individual? And the res- as the result of the world's worship, uh, the, we find the beast does exactly what one would expect. He takes complete control or complete authority. But notice also that the world doesn't just worship the beast. Because the very first part of verse number four says that they worship the dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan. So they obviously understand that there's a supernatural power behind this. So they worship Satan as God and the Antichrist as the Messiah, if you may, the risen one, the one with all power, and we, we remember that Satan is confined to the earth. We've already discussed this in chapter 12. He's bound there. So this is his only domain now. And by taking up uh, residence in the body of the Antichrist, he's f- assuming a physical form that is being, giving him the ability to gain control over the world. So the Antichrist and the false god that is giving him his power become the objects of the world's devotion and their worship. Paul taught, told us that this would happen. Back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, And then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. See, the one that Jesus slays at his coming is the same one whose coming into power is done according to the works and the activity of Satan, as it says there in 2 Thessalonians 2. And now we see how all this activity is taking place, how as uh, Satan uh, takes advantage of the Antichrist's death and brings about his resurrection. And in fact, since we know that Satan is uh, in control of the 10 world leaders, it would would seem to follow logically that Satan is actually behind all of this. Could you picture how this is taking place here? Satan's in control of the ten world leaders at the time. He is helping give power and raise up the Antichrist. The Antichrist is, is killed. Satan indwells the Antichrist and brings him back to life and then brings the Antichrist to eliminate three of the ten. It's, it's, Satan is working all of this, and he's trying to get his complete control over the world, because all he has now is this earth at this point. And he says, this is my only chance. This is my, the, if I'm going to have a chance at all, I have to control all of this. And he's working a plan, trying to accomplish his will. And this is the moment when the Antichrist becomes the ruler of the world at the mid-tribulation point. And now we find the reason why he is called the Antichrist after all. He is a man who is claiming to be Christ on the basis of his resurrection. And we find that he... Listen, Satan has never had an original thought in his life. He's always tried to be something else. His fall from heaven was, I will be not... The most important and the most... I will be like the Most High. I will be like God. And we find that as he br- puts together his master plan, to rule the world, it involves bringing his begotten, if you may, back to life from the death. And uh, we find later on there's going to be another beast that comes out, or a, as we many might know him as a false prophet... And there's a false tr- a trinity as well in, in all of this. He, is just a, he he's, he's just a copycat is all he is. He's never had an original thought in his life. John told us that this individual would be called Antichrist because he opposes Jesus. We see that on display. Because he's also indwelt by the Antichrist, we see that on display here as well. And now we see that he is Antichrist because he is completely counterfeit Christ also. In Second Thessalonians chapter two verses three and four says this: Let no man deceive you by any means, for that they shall not come except there be a be, there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Paul said the antichrist would claim to be God. He'd take the seat within the newly built Jewish temple uh, and claim to be the Christ. Daniel told us this as well. Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 through 39 says, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the nation be accomplished, for uh, for that, that is determined shall be done. "...neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things." Thus shall he do in the most strongholds uh, with a strange god, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many, and shall divide the land for gain. So Daniel told us that the antichrist would magnify himself above every god; he would speak blasphemous things, and of course, uh, we we see that in the heads that are represented there on the beast as well. Ultimately, that last one being put to death and then rising again. He'll claim to be the, the Messiah, the Christ. But in reality, the Antichrist will honor a God of forces, it says there in Daniel chapter 11, which is a reference to the God of the world, God of, of physical ability, God of what is tangible and, and can be controlled. And with the, this, the help of this foreign God, the Antichrist will take control of this world's strongest forces. He will also put an end to worship of all other gods at the same time, or a religion that would worship uh, anything other than being directed to He Himself or Satan. In Daniel chapter 9, we learn that His rise to power includes the ending of the sacrifices in the temple, and uh, because He's going to say He alone is the God of earth, uh, of earth. Daniel chapter 9, verse number 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Now, rem- let's remember what we're talking about here. One week is talking about the seven years of tribulation, all right? He'll confirm the covenant for one week. His rise, the power begins with that confirmation of that covenant, instilling uh, and instituting uh, temple worship again, and a sacrifice there at the altar in a newly built Jewish temple. Something that is not available now, but that will be his claim to fame. He, he makes it happen, he brokers a deal of peace, and he allows that to take place. He allows that for three and a half years. For three and a half years, it seems like everything's going relatively okay. I mean, as far as religion's concerned, especially for the Jews, they're able to worship, come and go within the temple, sacrifice there at the altar. But at the three and a half year mark, he says, all right, uh, now I am God. And he sets himself up as such. And, and as he is starting to make and uh, plays for taking complete control over the world, possibly those three of the 10 uh, world leaders, they don't like it. So they assassinate him. They think everything's good. Then he raises from the dead and he eliminates them. And now because he's eliminated them and risen from the dead, everyone in the world says, he is God. There's no one that can make war against him. And they elevate him to this place. And then he walks into the temple, the Jewish temple. He stops all worship of any kind, all sacrifice. And he sets himself in the temple because he's saying, I am God. This is where this is come to, coming to, and this is where we find ourselves right here at this midway point of tribulation. And so the end of sacrifices in the temple happen at that mid, uh, middle of the week, and it coincides with the abomination that desolates the temple. And so this is the same, thing that, the same moment that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24, and when he told the Jews that they were to flee to the mountains. Look at Matthew 24, verses 15 through 16, if you'd like to turn there. He says, when ye shall, I'm sorry, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. In Isaiah 28, the prophet Isaiah warns Israel that their agreement with the man who is their enemy will actually come back to hurt them and haunt them. In Isaiah chapter 28, verses 14 and 15, wherefore... Hear the word of the Lord. Ye scornful men that rule this people, which is in Jerusalem, because ye have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehoods have we hid ourselves. But verse number 18 says this, and your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. So he says, hey, you guys think that making this covenant with this wicked, evil man is is actually doing something good for you because, hey, now you get a temple and you get to go and worship and you you get to bring sacrifices. And it's kind of like back to the old days, right? And everything's hunky-dory for you as Jews. But he says, hey, uh, that covenant, that that agreement is not, it's going to come back to haunt you. You think everything's good and everything's okay, but in the end, it's going to come back and they're, you're going to be trodden down under it as well. So at the midpoint of tribulation, the Antichrist is murdered, as we said, probably by the three kings. Satan resurrects him, uh, and, uh, resurrects the Antichrist's body, and through his resurrection, the Antichrist cra- claims to be the real Christ. He subdues the three kings and that had killed him, and, and uh, the other seven kings fall in line under him. He gains a worldwide following and everyone worships Him and ultimately also worships Satan because of it. And this is just an interesting note to think about also as we continue on. Jesus came. It was prophesied that He would come. He fulfilled hundreds, if not thousands of prophecies already, right? And there's still that many that He's going to continue to fulfill. He he was crucified, buried... And rose again, seen of His disciples, seen of hundreds afterwards, and seen as ascend into heaven, and still there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions or billions of people that still deny that He's he's Savior and that He's God. And that just goes to show you that true faith does not come by signs and wonders. True Jesus said it. He said like, if the, 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 in uh, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? The, the, st- the story goes that the, the rich man died, and he's there in hell, and he lifts up his eyes in torment. He says, hey, please just send Lazarus back uh, to tell my, uh, tell my brothers so they don't come to this horrible, wicked place. And what was he told? They have, Ab- they have the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets. And if they will not believe them... They won't believe even if they saw one back from the dead. Because true faith doesn't come because of signs and wonders. But notice the complete difference here. Here this one comes on the scene and he's, unlike Jesus, coming with a political and a a worldly kingdom uh, desire of rising to fame and control. He is put to death and rises again. And now the whole world, because of the sign and wonder of His resurrection, says, ha, this guy's the legit thing. He, he's the real deal here. And they put their faith in Him. False faith comes by signs and wonders. Let, let, let's, just, let's just put that on the table and just file that back in the back of our minds and our hearts, that we walk by faith, not by sight. And that when, we, when it comes to religious, if we want to use that term, activities that are all about the signs and all about the wonders. Let's just remember the difference between Jesus, the true Messiah, and the Antichrist, the false Messiah. One sign and wonders didn't bring true faith. The other signs and wonders brought false faith. just, Just an aside there to think about But he claims to be God, so the Antichrist enters into the tribulation temple. He runs out all of the Jews. He sits himself there on the mercy seat. He desolates the temple. He ends the sacrifices, and he puts the, the, the end to any other worship in the world other than to him and to Satan. And now, now we're starting to see how all of these events that we've read about in chapter 11 and we'll learn about it already in chapter 12, they all fit together. They're all starting to coincide together, all really starting to kind of put the whole picture, a three-dimensional view or a 360 view of all of this, right? In chapter 11, we found two witnesses. These two witnesses have been proclaiming and prophesying for the first three and a half years. See, people in the world, they was like, man, these guys are, brought, are, what, bringing, are, what, bring, are who are bringing all these horrible, wicked, and uh, terrible things against us, the, 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 the plagues that are happening, and the, the, uh, the, the, just the world calamities. And all. I mean, the, these guys are the reason behind it, and then they're put to death in the streets, right? And the whole world cheers, and they celebrate by giving gifts to each other like it's Christmas or something. And we wonder, how, who, how can the beast have power to defeat two of God's prophets like that? Well, because he's indwelled by Satan, and Satan has resurrected him. So on top of defeating the two prophets that everybody thinks are the result or the reason why bad things are happening, on top of that, he's now risen from the dead. No wonder everybody is looking at him saying, man, this guy is someone that we need to put up there and uh, put uh, as a leader, someone that we need to follow behind. How many times have we heard about people, even in our world today, on the verge of some type of a peace treaty between the Jews and those in the Middle East? And they say, man, if someone could do something like that, they'd be a real leader. Well, that's kind of what happens at the beginning of tribulation to start this man's power, right? He he is able to broker a deal to bring a temple back to Jerusalem, to bring worship back to it, and to be able to have sacrifice on an altar there. And so all these things together are just padding this guy's resume, if you want to put it that way. And it's no wonder, humanly speaking, why people are so drawn to him and wanting to follow him. The beast has been celebrated for ending the terror of these men, and that would only add to the world's desire to worship him. So the Antichrist will be celebrated at the mid-tribulation point as the risen Christ, seemingly as the Savior of the world. But where they think peace is coming, great torment is about to follow. He's ended the terror of the judgments that the world associated with these two witnesses. He's established a new worldwide kingdom under his rule with one system of worship centered on him and his God. And all these details are further confirmed to the rest of this chapter in chapter 13, which will continue on into next week as we, con- uh, as we continue through our studies. But it's just an interesting thing to see the Antichrist rise to power. And as we start putting all the pieces of the puzzle together, the picture starts to become clearer and clearer. But we ultimately understand this, that while Satan is being worshipped through all of this, God is still in control. He has not lost power. He's still right where he's always been. And uh, while He has allowed for these things to happen as part of His ultimate plan, He's not lost any of His authority along the way. Our Father, we thank You for this evening and uh, Your Word and Your goodness, Lord. I ask now that as we start to come before You with our requests and petitions, Lord, that You'd hear them and that You'd answer them according to Your will and Your way. Help us to just trust that You, the God who's in control of all the things we've been discussing through Your Word already, is still in control today. And that you have the power to be there and, and help us. You tell us to bring our cares to you because you care for us. And so therefore, Lord, we do that tonight. Lord, we ask that you hear us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you do have a request that you've not yet turned in, and one of those blue cards, hold it up high for the match. It's there right in the back. He'll grab it from you on his way, back, uh, way up to give me these new ones here tonight. All right, let me mention these, and you jot them down in that section there in your prayer bulletin that says other requests uh, or new requests there, and uh, make sure to make them a matter of prayer as well. Uh, Ms. Lisa DeMint is asking prayer for uh, Jim. Uh, He's got a a shoulder, uh, his shoulder replacement has been dislocated, and uh, he'll be having a procedure done on May the 9th. And so he's feeling very discouraged about that and, of course, in pain from it. And so keep Jim in your prayers, please, tonight. Uh, The Sedlocks are asking prayer for Kristen's grandmother, who is on hospice. And uh, Yoko, is that right, Uh, Kristen? And uh, so be in prayer for her grandmother who's in ho- on hospice. And then praising the Lord, though, they are closing on a, a new house in the middle of the month, and uh, they will be having a moving party tentatively scheduled for the 20th or 21st. So I think that's a plea for help. If anybody wants to be able to help them, to make sure to offer uh, your help there. I think I'm out of town that w- that week in th- those days, so... Um, but. Uh, uh, we're praising the Lord Maybe. with him. Oh, <laughs> I'm definitely out of town then. <laughs> but uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, be a, be, a, be there and to help them with that. We praise the Lord with them. Miss um, Tana's asking prayer tonight uh, for traveling mercies for uh, Miss Tammy. Uh, they're, they're traveling back, should be back tomorrow uh, with Michaela as well. Yeah, so praise the Lord for that. Um, be in prayer for Miss Rhonda and her family as well. And then uh, there's, she has an appointment on May the 17th at 1045 with a cancer doctor, so be in prayer uh, for that appointment, please, for Miss Tana. Um, Ms. Sabrina is asking prayer for travel mercies as she'll be traveling uh, the 8th through the 16th, and so uh, just pray that the Lord would give them blessings and safety as they travel. And then uh, Ms. Juanita is asking prayer uh, for her mother-in-law and her health, uh, please continue to pray for uh, Miss Juanita's health issues as well, and uh, for the ultrasound on, in Tucson uh, next Wednesday, is that right? Next Wednesday. And so be in prayer for those uh, things, for her mother-in-law, for her health, and then for uh, the ultrasound. Ed Wilhelm's asking prayer. Um, Brother Jerry Smith is in the hospital. Um, he's got a, uh, there, it's a, a, I guess a BPAP, uh, pumping air into his lungs. And uh, so um, I went. I tried to stop by the uh, hospital this afternoon to see him. He was asleep, and uh, so I didn't wake him. I left him a note, told him I'd try to stop in tomorrow. Um, but uh, I don't know. Uh, it's not looking too good right now. So just be in prayer for Brother Jerry, and uh, ask the Lord to be with uh, with him and his family as well. And then uh, praise the Lord also, uh, Brother Wilhelm saying praise the Lord for a great missions conference also. So we praise the Lord uh, as well with him in that area. So let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight, and uh, let's uh, ask him to be with these requests. Find yourself a prayer partner if you'd like, and you're welcome to pray for as long or as for a little as you'd like, but you're dismissed when you're finished praying. So let's go to the Lord now.